Thank you, Dennis, for giving me a chance to preach this morning. I always appreciate that opportunity and uh, appreciate your, your support as my family and I continue to pursue a call to church planting or pastoral ministry, wherever that may be. So please do continue to keep us in your prayers. With uh, six children as I have, our mornings are often hectic, shall we say. Sunday mornings are no exception, and uh, we live on the east side, so you never quite know what you're going to get, and I've been, you can hear a little bit of nasal congestion in my voice, I've, I've had a little bit of um, affliction, shall we say, and I think that's God's way of, of making my preaching authentic, because I'm preaching on trials today, so there you go. I'm a runner, and running in Sabino Canyon recently, some of you may have hiked or run up that gorgeous scenic corridor of, of our Tucson community. It's one of the most popular places people visit when they come from out of town, and a lot of the locals have discovered its beauty as well. And I was running, and I was just going to run a mile, because I'm not in shape like I have been in the past. But it was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. There was a nice, cool breeze, and I said... I'm not sure why, but I said, I'm going to try to run to the end. It's four miles uphill. So about two-thirds the way there, too far to turn back, I found myself reciting the text for this morning's sermon. I shall not die, but I shall live and declare or recount the deeds of the Lord. These verses really are an appropriate response to trial, aren't they? Declaring to ourselves and to the Lord and to humanity our hope in Christ. So whether something as insignificant as praying for endurance to finish a run you probably shouldn't have taken in the first place, or something as significant as confronting your own death, as I think David was in these verses. This is a prayer for us. So as we consider this text and David's whole psalm in Psalm 118, I'm hoping that God will encourage us this morning with what I'm calling resurrection assurance. Resurrection assurance. What is resurrection assurance? I think we'll see as we go along this morning that Resurrection assurance is because of our relationship with Jesus, we know, we have confidence, we have comfort that God will neither leave us nor forsake us in the midst of our troubles. That as Paul writes, that nothing in heaven or earth, in the heights or in the depths, or anything in all of creation shall separate us from the love of God because of Jesus. That's the proof. It's because he is alive. That's what I mean by resurrection assurance. And it's only resurrection assurance that I think would enable us to say, as David says several times in this psalm, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Only something that can never die, or if it dies, will live again, can we say, endures forever. Something that endures forever has to be grounded on if not the resurrection, then something very much like the resurrection. 
For us, the resurrection is something that we look back on. It's, it's an event in history. It's taken place in time and space in days gone by. But for David, the resurrection was something that he anticipated. He saw it through the promises of God. And so whether we look back on the resurrection as we do or whether we look forward to the resurrection as David did, we can still take comfort in its strength for us in our circumstances. And through that comfort, we can say, his steadfast love endures forever. So let's look at this text that I'm going to be speaking on this morning, Psalm 118. If you'd like, you can turn there in the Bible with me or listen. I've already read the the main gist of my text once. I had plenty of time to think about it. God etched it into my brain, but let's read it again. Let's take a look at it or listen again as we hear from the Lord this morning from Psalm 118. Verses 17 and 18. This is God's word. David writes, I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that indeed, You have not given us over to death, that we have the assurance that comes from the resurrection. Despite our circumstances, because of Jesus, we have hope. And because we have hope, we have a mission. And I pray that you'll help us to see these things this morning as your people. And as Dennis has prayed already, that you would revive and renew us in our mission to be your people in our communities, in our families, and in this city. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. So let's consider resurrection assurance this morning. We're going to begin by talking about its painful context. So my first point this morning is that the context of our resurrection assurance is painful. We can see that in our passage in several places. I didn't read the whole psalm, but if you, if you were to look at it, you'd see in several places David is in the context of pain. In verse 7, he says, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. David is surrounded by people who hate him, who are looking, indeed, anticipating, excited about nothing more than his downfall. He's not just surrounded by those who hate me, but a multitude of those who hate me, people that are strangers to him, foreigners, whom he calls the nations. He says, all nations surrounded me, verse 10. And they didn't just surround him in poetic form. He's laying uh, description upon description. On every side, he's surrounded. There's no escape. There's no backdoor exit. That, that his pain is coming from all quarters, head to toe. And I love this, this uh, image in verse 12. They surrounded me like bees. Now, if you've ever been chased by bees or, or have been confronted with a bee's nest, you know that's not a, a, a pleasant feeling. It's not just that you're being surrounded, but you have no idea which direction they're going to come from. When I was a boy, my dad was uh, using the edger in the backyard, and, and this is something where the blade cuts down into the ground to, to make a nice straight line for the grass. But he was edging a section of the yard that we hadn't edged before. And as he was edging, he, 
the, the blade of the edger cut into an underground wasp's nest. And as I was watching my dad, this cloud of black bugs just streamed out of the ground. And they, it, it would look like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. I mean, it was, they almost formed an arrow shape. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and in my mind, I'm sure it's exaggerated, but as I, as I watched, it was like it was slow motion. This cloud arose in the air. And, and as they dispersed, they, they regathered into this arrow shape and attacked my father and attacked the edger. And literally, he was running across the yard, and, and this cloud was following him. And he threw the, the screen door to the house open, and he ran inside and slammed the door and ran straight into the bathroom. Because in his mind and in his panic, he thought this is the one place that he can go to escape them and keep them from coming onto the rest of us, because he knew that they were up in the folds of his clothes and so forth. Well, he, by the time he was done, he had stings all over his body, and indeed he isolated those bees or wasps or whatever they were into the bathroom. But being surrounded like bees, I imagine that David had, had a sense of, of terror. Where do you go to escape being surrounded like bees? And then also in verse 12, David describes his painful context. He he, he says that his enemies went out like fire among thorns. Have you ever built a bonfire with thorns, with dried thorn branches? They're, 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 they make great light, but not a lot of heat, because the minute that that thorn branch goes onto the flames, it's instantly consumed. And so I imagine that as he's describing his pain and his misery here, that he's describing the instantaneous attack of his enemies. They didn't wait one moment, but they attacked him immediately and instantly and left him no time to respond. So that in verse 13, he's pushed hard or thrust down by his enemies. They literally threw him to the ground. David certainly is a, has a knack for imagery, doesn't he? being thrust down and surrounded like bees and attacked like the fire consumes thorns and, and we're left just to imagine. And, and I think that's part of the Lord's purpose in these verses for us. Because God wants to invite us to consider how we in our circumstances are surrounded and pursued and cornered and in a panic and see no way out. I certainly can think of circumstances in my life where we, where I've had this sort of experience. I guess sometimes the, the, the thought comes to me in the midst of my trial and even in this run that I described to you somewhat humorously, why? God, why can't you do your work in my life in a different way? Why did you have to choose her or him to teach me lessons about how much you love me and how much you care for me? God, why didn't you consult me first when you were thinking about the enemies that you're going to use to teach me and to guide me and to cause me to learn about your mercies? 
And I guess if I had to choose myself, I wouldn't choose any trials at all. But I would choose kind of a, a pathway that is smooth. Maybe a few pebbles here and there to remind me that there are rocks in the road, but certainly no obstacles or boulders in the path. And maybe some distant rumblings of enemies over the ridge, but certainly not the, not the kind of attacks and threats that David felt in this psalm. But I've learned that assurance and confidence and comfort typically don't come in those sort of sterile lab or video game contexts, do they? It's never a theoretical danger that God uses to teach us. It's never just kind of the, the, a safe, uh, uh, potentially threatening situation. It's always something that brings us right to the edge, right to the brink. And that if it was anything less, then it wouldn't be God. I was challenged with this idea, which I've been learning and, and, and thinking a lot about lately in reading the, uh, the book by C.S. Lewis called The Problem of Pain. It's a great book. For, for Lewis, the problem of pain is, if God is so good, then why are things so bad? Or as some, uh, some of you may have heard before, even thought before, if God is so good, then why is there evil in the world? The problem, the problem of pain. Lewis writes, the problem of reconciling suffering with the existence of God who loves is only confusing as long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. It's only insoluble if we look on things as if man were the center. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. And then Lewis quotes this verse from Revelation 4.11. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. He says again, We were not primarily made that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but that God may love us and that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well pleased. Jesus, in being baptized, heard the voice of his Father in heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God's plan for our lives is that he, he would be well pleased in us. The creator of all that there is has intended us to be pleasing to him. We are not pleasing to him in ourselves. But by his grace, he is intent. In fact, he is jealous and eager and zealous to make us pleasing. I have been married this summer for 15 years. For some of you, that may seem like a very short while. Others of you may not be able even to imagine that number. 
15 years. And as, as I look back on those years, there are a number of things that I'm amazed that I actually said. <laughs> and as my wife and I were contemplating marriage and talking about it or not talking about it, as the case may be, I remember saying something that I probably shouldn't repeat, but I will anyway, because you'll get a kick out of it. I said, Polly, I love you for who God is making you to be. <laughs> Whoops. That'll really give you confidence, won't it, gals? He's in it for the long haul, this guy. And then I, I learned slowly over the years. I learned quickly not to say that. <laughs> but I learned that, in fact, I love her. Let me put it this way. I learned that God loves me for who I am right now. That yes, yes, of course, there's something he's making me to be. He is. He's a craftsman, and he will not rest. He'll stay up all night in the garage, if you'll allow that analogy, working and shaping and, and honing and fine-tuning. But he loves me for who I am now. And so as we think about the painful context of resurrection assurance, we need to know, first of all, that God loves us now. But it's because of that love, because of that commitment that he has, he will not rest until, until we are suitable objects of the perfection of his love. I love the text in Ephesians where Paul writes, You are God's workmanship, poiema created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance that you might walk in them. The word for workmanship means God's unique work of art, his single piece of mastery. He has invested his creative divine energy and power and intellect in shaping you, you alone, to be his glorious treasure. He has made you lovely because he has set his seal of affection upon you. In Christ, he has identified you as one of his own so that Jesus' life is your perfect life, that Jesus' death is your perfect death, and Jesus' resurrection becomes your resurrection. Yes, you are accepted in God, and, and because of this, he is committed to seeing you through to ultimate and perfect glory. So his love is not merely static, but active and dynamic to hone and refine your beauty as a human being. And this process of perfection involves good works that you might walk in them. And I ask you, when will you do good works? You will do good works in the midst of your painful trials. Because it's only when you're confronted with a life and death situation that God calls forth from us the kind of focus and faith that is necessary to do something that truly is good. 
And so this leads us to my second point, which is that not only is the context of our resurrection assurance pain, but we discover resurrection assurance as we discover Christ. And so I'm calling this, it's Christian discovery. I've, I've explained to you that, that God accepts you and loves you right now the way you are because of Jesus. You see, we don't know, we don't have assurance apart from Jesus. This is the radical claim of the Christian faith, and it is radical, and it is offensive, that apart from the resurrection, in time and in space, we have no basis for assurance of anything. In fact, we could even say there is no sanity. I like the little children's nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. This is the experience of everyone. We all experience that things fall and are broken. We all experience pain. But not everyone understands that there is a reason for the pain. In fact, I would say many of us have no explanation for the pain that we go through. We simply shrug and say, that's life. Things fall apart, yes, but what makes our experience of the falling apart of things different is that we understand that things were put together, that there is a creator who has pieced the puzzle together, who built the wall, who brought Humpty into existence, who placed him there, as it were, to survey his glorious creation. We believe that there was a beginning and a plan and that the fall is not all that there is. And that while all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again, the king can. Friedrich Nietzsche's claim that God is dead wasn't merely an attack against Christian orthodoxy. When he said God is dead, what he was saying, his radical claim, is that every system, every thought pattern, every philosophy which reaches outside of the moment for any hope whatsoever is dead. So whether it's a secular or a sacred system of otherworldly assurance, Nietzsche's claim was that that was dead, that that was meaningless, that that had no value, that that had no basis. And in the place of reaching somewhere else for assurance, Nietzsche advocated this idea of living in the moment, of accepting everything that you faced as being all that there is, and in that sense as being acceptable, as being appropriate. Not good, not moral, it just is. But the discovery of the gospel, the discovery of Christ, which is my second point, shows us that not only is all that there is in the moment, and believe me, if you've ever been in a trial, you know that it feels like that's all there is in the moment. When you're surrounded by bees, you're not thinking about much else. 
So in that sense, Nietzsche is hitting on a truth. We can't just flee to some nether, nether land in the middle of our trials. But what God is saying is, not only is there a nether, nether land that, that's there to, to give us the basis of assurance, but out of that heavenly place, God has come in himself, in Jesus, the God-man. And he's made our assurance real in space and in time. We discover assurance of the resurrection when we discover Jesus. This is counterintuitive because it, it works against all of our attempts to, to save ourselves, which is really the human condition. And I thought about this as I was reading this psalm, Psalm 118. It's a psalm that Jesus quotes a number of times. I want to read one of those instances in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and, and he tells them a parable. It's the parable of the tenants. It's the parable where there's a master of the house and he plants a vineyard and he appoints some tenants to take care of it and they don't do it. They don't do their job. And so instead he sends someone to remind them of their work, a prophet, if you will. And, and they don't listen to the persons that he sends and he sends one after another and they don't listen again and again. And finally, the master of the vineyard comes up with a brilliant idea. He says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. But far from listening to the son, the, owner, the uh, tenants of the vineyard come up with a brilliant idea. Hey, this is the son. Let's get him out of the way and then the vineyard will be ours. And in the parable, Jesus concludes by saying this, Have you never read in the Scriptures, which the Pharisees had, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We work, we look, we try to find assurance apart from Christ. We try to find assurance in our jobs. We try to find assurance in our calling. We try to find assurance in our relationships, in our studies. We try to find assurance in our family settings, in our churches, in our, dare I say it, in our theology even. And what Jesus is saying here, his radical claim, is that resurrection assurance can only be found, it can only be discovered in Christ. Because it's his life that is our life. It's his death that is our death. We've been looking at resurrection assurance this morning. We've seen that the context inevitably, even though we don't like it, is painful. We've seen that we discover Christian assurance when we discover Christ. I want to conclude by observing this, that our response to resurrection assurance is mission. What I'm saying when I say its missional response is this, 
that once we discover that Jesus is alive and that Jesus in his resurrection in time and space is the only basis for our assurance, once we know that, our response can only be to join him in his mission. We see this in our text when when David writes, he says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Recount means to retell, to say, to tell the story. You see, when God saves us from death, He doesn't do it merely for our sakes. He saves us from death for other people's sakes. God has a global mission. He has many people in this city, as he said to Paul. There are many people who need to hear the deliverances that we have been through. When we have discovered assurance through Christ in the midst of our painful trials, we need to tell people about it. In, in the Old Testament, after Moses had led the people, he came to have a conversation with his father-in-law, Jethro, who was not a believer. And after Jethro had heard all the deliverances that God had brought his people through, Jethro's response was, Now I know. Now I know. I had some questions before. But now I know that the God of Israel is the one true God. And then I love in that passage in Exodus 18, they actually have a sacred meal in celebration of the telling of this story and of the accomplishment of God's redemption. In, in John chapter 4, when, when Jesus confronts and, and comforts the Samaritan woman, after that whole episode and he talks with his disciples, we read her going back to her friends in the city saying, come, see, hear a man who told me everything I ever did. The fact of the matter is that saying is true, that we are the only Jesus and we are the only Bible that some people will ever see or ever read. I believe that the trials that God sends into our lives, the painful, death-threatening difficulties that we confront are sent for the purpose of God expanding his mission in the world. My mother, about 18 years ago, was diagnosed with cancer, a malignant sarcoma in her hip, the size of of a softball. The doctors predicted her survival rate at less than 10%. She's alive today. No recurrence. Does it always happen that way? No. But as she confronted that trial, she promised God that one thing she would do in response, if he were to deliver her, is to tell, to recount the deeds of the Lord. And she makes it her ambition to make a difference in people's lives because God has given her 
a new lease on life. I think that's why you're facing the trial that you're facing. And as long as we resist the trial, as, as, as God said to Paul, why do you kick against the pricks? Why are you bucking under the reins of this trial? Why do you resist, as the phrase in the Old Testament is, why are you a stiff-necked people? As long as we resist God's leading, we thwart and hinder his mission in the world. The reason the trial is in front of you is so that you could become a missionary for God. In preaching, perhaps, but not necessarily. Gee, uh, Peter, in his epistle, said, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. See, sometimes that answer comes without words. When was the last time someone came up to you and said, why do you do the things that you do? If you haven't had that experience recently, it may be that you're not doing things like Jesus would have you to do them. Or it may be you're not around people who notice. It may be that you need to go out and, and be around the lost, the broken, the hurting, those whom Jesus would call who are not far from the kingdom, those who have spiritual eyes but aren't quite yet have put their faith in him. Don't let these trials go to waste. Allow God to use you to build his kingdom and to give other people the hope that you have been given, that resurrection assurance which comes in the midst of our pain in discovering Jesus. Well, I made it back from my run. I'm here to prove it. I didn't, lie. I didn't die. I'm not lying either. And I promised that I would tell the good deeds of the Lord on that run. And I, I have, haven't I? He brought me through. He taught me some things along the way, too. As I was running back down the mountain, I met a woman named Chelsea. Not Chelsea Clinton. And uh, Chelsea was struggling. She was running very slow, just a little faster than me. So I caught up to her and, and asked her how she was doing. She said, fine. And I said, let's try to tackle this last hill together because even as you're running down, there's uphills. And, and as we were going, Chelsea said, thank you. You, you really helped me finish out this last part of the run. And, it, you know, when you have a, a companion and something like that, it, time seems to go a lot quicker. Well, I thanked her and I, I told her about what I was doing and I told her about the verse that, that God had reminded me of and shared a little bit about my hope in Christ. She just moved to Tucson and is a young lady who's a teacher, actually. I guess what I'm saying is, is that part of God's will for me was to share the comfort that he gave me with someone else. And he gave me that opportunity. That's God's will for you too. Would you look for it today? Today. Look for it this week. Turn your trial into a blessing for someone else. Give them the assurance of the resurrection that God has given you this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, for your patience with us. Thank you for 
loving us just the way we are and yet not, not being content until your perfect glory is perfectly displayed. Thank you that you are, you are passionate about your work and that we are your workmanship. We've been created for good works. And though you have, as our text says, disciplined us severely, you have not given us over to death. And because Jesus has burst the gates of death, we have no fear of anything in this life. We know that there is a purpose and there is meaning behind all that we experience. Help us to turn these experiences, Lord, into kingdom use. And we pray that this assembly of the saints would be known as the people who, who have that assurance and who are on that mission to share the glories of your love. We pray, Lord, that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. Do it, Lord, for your sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.